Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the uh, two sessions gathering in Beijing, which will showcase a change in the government lineup as China looks to emerge from the difficult economic conditions resulting from the pandemic. Delegates from across the country have come together for the annual plenary meetings of the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. The outgoing Premier, Li Keqiang, delivered his final work report at the opening of the NPC session yesterday, announcing a 5% economic growth projection for the year. Other targets include keeping inflation to 3% and creating 12 million urban jobs. The gatherings of the top political bodies are expected to see uh, major reshuffles in government posts. And at the end of the session, uh, Li Chang, the second-ranking member of the Politburo Standing Committee and former Shanghai Party chief, is expected to succeed Li Keqiang as Premier. And after 9.15, we'll be looking at fire safety considerations in a high-rise city like Hong Kong following the serious blaze that engulfed a building in Chimsa Choi on Thursday night. You can let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or you can give us a call on 233-88266. And joining us now for the first part of our programme, we have with us uh, Andrew Leung, who's a prominent international China specialist uh, and chairman and CEO of Andrew Leung International Consultants and Investments, and also Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Uh, good morning to you both. Uh, perhaps, uh, uh, Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney, if we can uh, uh, come to you first. Um, uh, I guess the headline figure is uh, that the 5% economic uh, growth forecast, that has been described by some economists as uh, perhaps somewhat conservative. Uh, we also heard earlier this morning from Mark O'Neill saying, uh, well, he thought it was uh, rather overly optimistic given all the uncertainties uh, facing the country and the economy. What do you think? Well, I, you know, this is a year of recovery uh, with uneven, uneven uh, growth expected. Uh, uh, first, we have the aftershocks of COVID optimization, which will definitely impact uh, first quarter growth. Uh, uh, and due to uh, last year's pressures, the surge in cases we saw after controls were loosened in December, and the chance that we might see another disruptive wave uh, in a month or two. Uh, second, you know, we, we did see a lot of encouraging numbers related to travel and spending during the Chinese New Year, but uh, was this due to pent-up demand as well as unexpected opportunities for holiday travel? And if so, are these increases uh, sustainable? Uh, third, we know that government policies are likely to emphasize uh, leading economic areas that can be stimulated most directly uh, to achieve the biggest contributions to the economy. So we might see high rates of growth in places like Shanghai, Shenzhen, Beijing, and so on, but perhaps much lower elsewhere. And fourth, uh, it, it does seem that international demand might be soft uh, for various reasons this year uh, due, to, due to many, many factors. So uh, Beijing uh, doesn't seem to be counting on outsized export-led growth. Now, the goal is to recover as much as possible with the objective of laying a better foundation for a deeper recovery in 2024, which is to say what we keep hearing from Beijing is that they will resist overly loose fiscal and monetary policies that could lead to unsustainable growth, new bubbles, uh, or inflation. Now, I won't be surprised if we see cities like Shanghai, 
uh, for example, topping 8% growth in 2023, but the national level closer to half that, but perhaps as high as 5.5%. Now, uh, consequently, while the the, the 5% target is relatively modest by Chinese growth standards, it does echo what we've heard from leading international economists, although some have the number a little bit lower and some a little bit higher. Mm. So it does seem like a reasonable, achievable target, uh, perhaps one that can be exceeded a bit if no new major problems emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, good morning, Professor. What did you make of the emphasis on attracting FDI? Well, there have been some concerns, uh, I think, with some recent numbers from last year that, that the trend was moving down, uh, given uh, some pressures that we've seen from the United States, given uh, the fact that some, um, you know, even before the, the pressures from the U.S., we knew that uh, uh, low-cost uh, production was starting to move elsewhere to Vietnam, to India. And in fact, uh, those those productions, uh, as we know, are linked to Chinese supply chains. And in fact, a lot of the factories in those areas are being driven by Chinese capital and Chinese machinery. So it's not a, it's not a complete loss. Uh, and it is healthy for the Chinese economy to, to shed some of these uh, low, uh, low uh, cost, uh, low wage uh, jobs as they as they try to move towards um, uh, what they call higher quality development. Um, but there is still a desire to, to attract FDI. This is a point of pride, um, and I think that we'll see um, um, a, a raft of policies to support that and to return those normal those numbers to what we've seen in the past, keeping in mind that, that they're still not uh, very low, that they've only seen a modest decline. Right, and they, they um, it fits with this move or emphasis on higher quality growth as well, shedding, That's right. That's shedding right. some of the... Uh, low quality growth, uh, maybe to Bangladesh or other places. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, Andrew Lern, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, thank you. So, five percent growth projection, reasonable and, and achievable. Well, as pointed out just now, um, the uh, various uh, commercial um, uh, experts uh, in the field have predicted um, even higher growth mm. rate. For example, uh, Bloomberg has forecasted the uh, the rate to be 5.8 percent. So, I think 5 percent uh, is a pretty um, um, a conservative and moderate um, kind of projection. Um, it is uh, there are dynamics being unleashed uh, after the ending of the um, uh, COVID restrictions, uh, both on the domestic side and on the external side. The domestic side is that we're seeing a, almost an explosion uh, of internal um, consumption, um, uh, which has been suppressed because of various other restrictions and 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 so on. Um, as a result of the pandemic. Um, so definitely internal domestic consumption is, is picking up. And in fact, the, um, the two sessions put a lot of uh, a set great store uh, on the importance of uh, domestic consumption to drive the economy. Now, externally, it's also tail-telling. Um, after less than two months, uh, we're seeing uh, a thousand direct trains um, to uh, to Europe um, as part of the um, the kind of so-called Silk Road um, freight trains, uh, a thousand uh, freight trains at, um, um, at, at, at journeys in less than two months. This suggests that there is a great deal of export um, from China uh, to um, parts of Europe, um, all the way to. Duisburg, Germany, and 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 other uh, European uh, cities. Um, so 
external demand is picking up, even though, of course, it is um, uh, nowhere near um, the former uh, level because of the uh, disruptions um, as a result of the Ukraine war. So I think that uh, all in all, um, it seems to be a relatively conservative uh, guideline. Um, and in fact, the child is now no longer tied to a fixed uh, kind of um, uh, growth model, setting uh, uh, more emphasis uh, on higher quality growth, as just mentioned, uh, including the environment. Uh, for example, there's a great deal of um, um, mention uh, about the importance to pay um, uh, measures addressing the um, ecological challenges uh, of China uh, and to make China a, a beautiful country. You know, by the 2000 year 2045, um, growing, um, stressing the importance of green energy, um, 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 biodiversity, uh, and a range of other issues together with the support of uh, the China civil society. A lot of NGOs, for example, are rallying behind the government uh, to make that, um, the environment a much better uh, place to live in. All right. Do you think keeping the deficit uh, below the 3% of GDP is, is prudent? Well, I think that there is not much... Um, uh, to, um, uh, of course, there was, there was a great deal of um, uh, turmoil as a result of the um, uh, disruptions in the financial market. First of all, um, as a result of the so-called crackdown of the big tech, um, uh, big big boys uh, like Alibaba and Tencent and so on and so forth. Uh, but there is a misreading in the West saying that you know China wants to cram down on big tech. Well, it's nothing of that sort. Um, the so-called crackdown is to address the kind of um, distortions to the market uh, monopolized by these uh, big tech companies, uh, even threatening uh, China's financial security. But in these two sessions, we're seeing a definitely a softening of the language uh, towards the big tech um, um, uh, companies. Uh, in fact, um, big tech is, is, is one of the key drivers. Uh, of China's economic growth, uh, putting great deal of emphasis on um, science, technology, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, big data, uh, and so on. There is a great deal of measures uh, in support of that. Um, so um, as far as the deficit is concerned, I, th I think that China's uh, deficit is by no means uh, severe. Um, of course, the government is very mindful uh, of the kind of debt incurred by the, um, the local authorities. Uh, but I think overall, uh, China's um, um, debt um, is, 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 is not serious at all because mm. most of the debt uh, is, is not external debt. Uh, a lot of the debt is internal, and, and of course it is, it is supported by China's huge um, foreign reserve savings, um, and, 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 and quicker than um, average uh, kind of growth right. uh, compared mm. with other countries. Mm. Mm. Professor Mahoney, do you think 5% uh, if achievable, and people seem to have a little bit plus or a little bit minus on, on that, is it enough to soak up the uh, uh, unemployment, especially among young people? You know, that's really the more important question here. And, and when I was listening to the, to the report, um, the, the desire to hit uh, 12 million uh, new jobs 
Um, this is this is really the key uh, figure that I think needs to be focused on, uh, in addition to the desire to uh, uh, hold inflation down. Um, uh, we know that that uh, we have a lot of new graduates. We have a lot of young people in urban areas that are that are uh, going to be looking for jobs this year. And China is very sensitive about uh, keeping um, uh, urban unemployment low, especially among uh, among young people. So this is going to be a key driver of of uh, policies. And um, you know the, the the concern about debt is is really not a national level concern, but but much more so the local level. Uh, we were starting to see some policies late last year, and these may change with with a new premier, um, that that were pushing local uh, jurisdictions to run uh, deficits um, to stimulate local economies. So if we're if we're talking about uh, deficit fueled uh, growth at the local level as opposed to the national level, uh, that may raise some sustainability concerns uh, down the road. Uh, on top of the fact that we know that uh, local budgets were already um, um, tapped uh, due to the expenses uh, related to the dynamic zero COVID policy. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the, the big question here is how are they going to um, um, ensure that we uh, hit those um, uh, uh, 12 million jobs? We, we're hearing some anecdotal reports that, uh, that the private sector is shedding jobs, so this might put more pressure on state-owned enterprises to um, to inflate their employment um, uh, in ways that uh, may not uh, contribute um, uh, as much as it should to their to their uh, profit margins or bottom lines, but certainly support state policies with regard to uh, youth unemployment. But this is this is the thing definitely to watch uh, as we go forward. In the right. So, so what sort of jobs are we talking about here? Um, what do you mean? In, 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 of, which, um, in which, sec- which sectors in particular? Or, or, or is, is the job creation uh, goal going to be across the board? Well, I think at this moment, right, uh, the, the talking point is, is high-quality high development. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that um, when we're talking about urban jobs and, and, and especially college graduates, we're not talking about low-wage jobs or factory labor. Um, uh, we do know that uh, one of the big uh, casualties uh, before the before the outbreak, um, but but also really accelerated by the outbreak, were small businesses. But at the same time, we know that young people uh, tend to be uh, uh, risk averse compared to the previous generations that they weren't starting new businesses. Mm-hmm. So whether or not this is a, a trend where we were, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, moving away from small business uh, led growth in, in, the, in the overall economy. Uh, remains to be seen. It's certainly going to be the case that stimulating and bringing small businesses back uh, uh, to the fore is going to take uh, uh, more effort and, and longer term. And although this will be uh, an interest of the central government, uh, where they can stimulate growth the quickest, of course, is in the state-owned enterprises, as well as uh, creating policies. Um, for example, what we saw uh, again late last year, where uh, local companies. Um, local tech companies would uh, be financed by local government to upgrade uh, other small and, and medium-sized businesses um, uh, with, with, with tech upgrading. So uh, my guess is that uh, mainly tech, um, uh, but also um, uh, you know would, would be high-quality growth sectors, but above all, uh, state-owned enterprises. Um, Andrew Leung, uh, the professor mentioned there as well the 
importance of keeping inflation down. I mean, the, the, the target is 3%. China's fortunate and uh, greater China is as well. We are also here in Hong Kong and we don't have a high inflation rate compared with uh, the, the US, compared with Europe. But uh, um, what do you think may be the inflationary uh, pressures that need to be controlled this year? Well, China, of course, is, a, is um, very, very different from other countries because um, other countries' inflation is, by, is uh, mainly caused by imported um, kind of products. Um, if you look around the world, uh, uh, almost everything is now made in China. Of course, China is now the greatest producer, and if anything, there is an excess capacity in China. So that would cram down the inflation uh, in ordinary commodities and ordinary um, kind of products. Um, but I think that the uh, inflation is is, uh, is is kept within a reasonable range. <clears throat> but the more important thing is pointed out earlier is, is how to address this um, uh, supply to 12 million jobs. Um, but I think that the um, uh, Beijing is putting a great deal of emphasis on entrepreneurial skills. We're seeing the, um, again an explosion of um, uh, small and medium-sized um, enterprises on the one hand, but a lot of startups um, uh, by enterprising uh, young people. Um, and, and, and one of the main problems in the past is that a great deal of jobs are concentrated in the um, coastal cities um, with, with vast number of, of um, um, uh, the population and a great deal of the economic activity. But now uh, with the high-speed trains um, and expanding the whole country, um, in, in fact, China is now already uh, account for more than half of the world's um, high-speed train network. It's going to double it further uh, to something like um, uh, 70,000 uh, kilometers uh, by the year 2035. And these high-speed trains are going to link up all the city clusters um, in um, the, uh, the northern part of China, central part of China, uh, all over, um, so that, that the uh, economic um, uh, uh, centers of economic activity are spreading uh, from the coastal regions to further afield. And this would create a greater opportunities for young people uh, to go north, uh, to go to the central part of China and the southern part of China, very many, many dynamic cities. So I think that this is another uh, kind of avenue. Um, and, and of course, the, um, uh, all the city clusters are dynamos of growth. And uh, the fact that they're linked uh, with high-speed rail would, would boost up the productivity, which is necessary to drive up the economic growth right. of China in the long term. Andrew, um, do you think the overall environment, you list a number of uh, positive factors there, but is the overall mood and the environment enough to unleash what the Americans call the animal spirits of the private sector? Um, I think the... Um, um, uh, the, the, the dramatic drop of the COVID uh, restrictions, right. um, obviously uh, uh, doing their part uh, to unleash this kind of optimism and 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 and, and enterprising spirit, and people see opportunities um, in in other 
in many different fields in the te- in the high tech field because the China is now firmly embracing the fourth industrial revolution, uh, which is changing um, how people organize their lives, uh, how even business are conducted. Um, as I mentioned before, I mean, if you go to uh, some of the restaurants in China, you're seeing uh, more and more staffless. Uh, restaurants where even meals are cooked by robotics, and if you go to a hotel, um, there are many. Uh, uh, you, you won't see any, any any staff in the reception. So everything is got automated. That that um, kind of drive the imagination uh, of a lot of the young people, young graduates, um, and say, "Wow, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to seize the future." So I think that there is a great deal of optimism, um, and then also um, uh, China's, of course, Belt and Road. Um, and network is, is connecting the rest of the world. So a lot of the young people are seeing opportunities abroad as well. Right. So I think that there's a great deal of animal spirit, um, you call it, being unleashed uh, as a result of what um, President Xi calls um, um, uh, unprecedented changes not seen in 100 years, both mm-hmm. internally and externally right. uh, for China. Professor Mahoney, I wonder if I could direct attention towards this triumvirate of housing issues there are unfinished properties and uh, some of which people have paid for or partly paid for and at the same time um someone's got to finance the completion so that people pay off the rest of the um but at the same time the local authorities are really constrained in their revenue because they were relying on a lot of them were relying on land sales and the the market's gone soft on that how, how do we unravel that knot? Well, that's a good question, and it's it's a little outside of my purview. But uh, I would say that uh, we, we're already hearing some reports from the two sessions um, that uh, um, there, there will be new policy supports to help stabilize uh, the real estate market. Um, I think that uh, what we were seeing last year was uh, a major painful and long overdue correction uh, one that was also, uh, I, I would argue, uh, linked to some old political factionalism that was finally uh, being resolved as we move forward with um, um, this uh, um, third term with uh, uh, President Xi, uh, where the old um, uh, Shanghai and Tuantai factions are now um, no longer really uh, decisive or, or even uh, major uh, filaments in, mm-hmm. in the decision-making process. And I, we see this above all with, with uh, Li Keqiang's exit um, uh, uh, this year, the last scion of the, of the old Hu Jintao Tuan Pai faction. Um, you know, the, 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 the thing, though, that here, and I, and I don't really uh, want to misdirect or, or, or redirect your question, but uh, this is, you know, obviously the, the, the housing issue is a concern, and obviously housing... Is a, is a major concern for young people and local economies. And so it, it's, a, it's still a front-burner issue uh, for Beijing, although they they've certainly um, uh, are focusing on, on broader um, uh, growth um, uh, concerns at this moment. Um, but I think that uh, the, the, the issue is, uh, are we going to see a split in, um, in how China approaches policies in cities versus um, on the other end, what we might see in uh, rural areas. Uh, and, and the reason why I raise this is because uh, the, the 
the new premier that we anticipate, uh, Li Qiang, is from Shanghai. Um, and we know that the policies this year will emphasize growth in the leading cities to help jumpstart uh, the recovery. Um, but he, again, is replacing Li Keqiang, who was from the Tuanpai faction. And the Tuanpai faction has its power base in the rural areas. In fact, if you go out into the rural areas of China, uh, and I've been out in many of them in the past year, you rarely see uh, the party flag or even the national flag. The flag that you always see is the Tuan Pai flag, the, the, the YCL, the, the, the Communist Youth League flag. So um, I, I, I believe that rural, revitaliz- rural revitalization remains um, a, a cornerstone of uh, Xi Jinping's agenda and national development strategies, and it, and it has to uh, in order to achieve the sort of uh, growth that they want to achieve over the you know in the 2030s and right. the 2040s, but will we see some relative neglect of the rural areas or second or third tier, or what we used to call second and third tier cities, uh, with the emphasis on these higher level first tier first tier cities this year? And will this will we see a bifurcation in in how real estate projects are handled uh, as we seek to shore up um, uh, these major urban markets? Um, before, um, you know, transferring um, uh, those gains uh, uh, elsewhere. So it, it may be that, um, that we see um, um, not just in terms of property and real estate, but um, uh, double approach um, uh, nationally that will uh, create some winners in the, in the near term, um, uh, hopefully at least, that, uh, uh, you know, as, as we did in the past, right, with, with uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, some people get rich first and, and will um, mm-hmm. we'll transfer that wealth. And, of course, that has been the model, but it may be some people recover first, including the property markets, and then we see um, those efforts moving further afield. And, indeed, where we have a lot of the property problems are in these second, third-tier uh, cities, uh, and so it may take some time to resolve. Okay. Okay, well, uh, stay with us. We're going to take a short break for a news uh, summary and a couple of announcements. We'll be back in about uh, three minutes to uh, continue uh, the discussion. A uh, quick look uh, at the weather. It's currently uh, 19 degrees. Humidity is at 41%. <laughs> And now the new summary with uh, Ben Che. Security has been stepped up for the National People's Congress session in Beijing. RTHK's Kelly Yu said in addition to more ID card checks from police in the capital, the event was also taking place in a closed-loop system, with attendees required to take PCR tests, undergo hotel quarantine, and wear masks. China analyst Mark O'Neill said the central government's 5% economic growth target may be challenging since retail sales were down and the property sector was struggling. However, DAB Party Chairwoman Starry Lee earlier called the target pragmatic. And the Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis has asked for forgiveness over the country's worst-ever train crash, which has prompted further protests in the capital Athens. 57 people died in Tuesday's collision between a passenger train and a freight train near Larissa. Clashes broke out yesterday between police and protesters. We'll have more news for you at 10. The Labour Department will hold the Exploring New Opportunities Job Fair at McPherson Stadium in Mongkok on March 8th and 9th. More than 50 employers will offer a wide range of job vacancies and accept applications on the spot. Please visit the Labour Department website at www.jobs.gov.hk or call 2153-3984 for details.
From the start, seniors have been with you, bringing you up wholeheartedly and witnessing your important milestones. When they face mental health issues, take the initiative to offer care that could bring them warmth and happiness. Join various kinds of healthy activities together and share the moments of daily life. Let's care for the mental health of our seniors. Show love for seniors. Care for their well-being. To learn more, please visit shallwetalk.hk. Welcome back to Bat Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And on this morning's programme, we're talking about the two sessions uh, gathering uh, in Beijing, the National People's Congress and the CPPCC uh, still with us. We have uh, Andrew Leung, who is Chairman and CEO of Andrew Leung International Consultants and Investments, and Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Mike. Andrew. If I can come to you, it's, yep. it's always election season in America. And as we know, um, the CHIPS Act, one of its most notorious uh, elements, is that if you take the money from American taxpayers to uh, expand your chip manufacturing in North America, you must not expand in, North, in China for a minimum of 10 years. So clearly there are... Uh, this is an economic assault, in fact, on, on China. As the presidential election ramps up, can you see more negative uh, implications for us? Well, definitely it's going to get worse before even ever getting better because we're seeing um, um, an existential um, kind of uh, contest uh, between the United States and China and the United States is going to double down and, and everything uh, short of a hot war uh, on China, uh, both uh, on technology and, and, in, and, and access to um, uh, chips, um, as well as uh, trade and, and geopolitics and, and diplomacy um, uh, and playing uh, the Taiwan card and, and everything uh, in his power to contain and if uh, ideally derail uh, China's trajectory, uh, trajectory, because China seemed to be um, a kind of pacing threat, um, and the, 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 uh, a country uh, which has the capacity uh, and the power to challenge uh, China's uh, uh, to challenge the United States hegemony. So I think that this is uh, going to get a lot worse. But as on the um, the chips front. Um, of course, the Huawei is taking a big hit, um, and the access to the top range, um, top range being defined as three nanometers and below, uh, the kind of very, very high-end chips um, is, is being blocked. Um, but I think that China is now um, putting all it has uh, on developing its own um, chip um, uh, technology, and, and and if you look at the economy, a great deal of the economy, both domestically and internationally, uh, is not tied to these high-end chips. These high-end chips only account for a small part uh, of the um, various products, whereas the large part of the um, economy, both domestic and inter international, uh, in the high high-tech industry, uh, is uh, driven by chips um, of of a um, still very very high-end but much, much lower right. uh, kind of um, um, miniature, uh, something like maybe 14 nanometers and so on and so forth, and China is now dominating the whole field. Um, 
Um, but this doesn't mean that China is not going um, at developing its indigenous uh, chip capability. Um, and we are seeing a, a new generation of chips, um, in, uh, for example, in so-called quantum using quantum technology and using new materials like graphite um, mm-hmm. because the existing chips are based on silicon. So I think that we are seeing a lot of different um, developments um, 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 uh, in, in, in trade in China, which is going to change uh, the whole dynamics of it. Um, but, I, but, I, but I think coming back to the housing, I think that there's a, a deeper um, uh, dimension uh, in the housing kind of challenge. Uh, first of all, that the, 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 what happened um, the year before uh, with the housing um, uh, sector collapse um, is, a, is, a, is a carrying call both to the government and to the, uh, the middle class um, 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 uh, um, uh, the kind of um, um, earners and who, who want to have their own housing is a big, big lesson. So this big lesson is being taught, and that this will serve as a kind of stabilized, stabilizing influence. But what is more, a lot. You, if you go to the countryside, you see a lot of empty house houses and empty apartment blocks. Well, this is really um, to pave the foundation for the Chinese. To, growing middle class, because for, for China to become um, an advanced uh, socialist state um, by the year 2050, where China's economy would, um, is set to, uh, set to overtake the United States in nominal terms, uh, this is all driven by um, the China's middle class. And China's middle class is projected to grow uh, from uh, maybe about 400 million uh, to double to 800 million. A lot of the middle class would not be concentrated in the coastal cities because they are already highly contested and they're going to be in the countryside, as I mentioned, uh, well, not only in the countryside, but in the, in the inner um, part of China, in, in, or even in the western part of China, the northern part of China, all linked by high-speed rail. And all these middle class are likely to be um, nurtured uh, with this housing, because housing is the anchor of the middle class economy. So I think that this is, um, uh, 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 um, is going to be some momentum uh, in perhaps allocating some of this empty housing uh, to the, um, uh, the kind of middle class migrating to the other areas in China. So this is, again, uh, a game changer. Right. Professor Mahoney, uh, Andrew introduced there the, the Taiwan card, and again, with American politics at fever pitch, and about the only thing they can agree on, that America gets stronger if it can make China weaker. What, what scope do you see for um, stirring the pot? Well, we know that um, the new Speaker of the House, uh, McCarthy, has promised to repeat uh, his predecessor's um, right. <laughs> performance by uh, coming to Taiwan, but he'll sequence this to, to achieve maximum um, um, political uh, impact, given the fact that, uh, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, we have increasing bipartisanship um, uh, on uh, contesting China and the United States, but at the same time, both parties are still competing with each other uh, to, to see who can um, uh, position themselves as the um, strongest anti-China uh, party. 
Uh, you know, the, the, the thing about the, the chips uh, issue that you raised, uh, I agree with Andrew that this, is, that this is not a major concern. I think it's highly reactionary and self-defeating by the U.S. I think China has engineered solutions to much bigger problems in terms of its rise as a technological society over the last several decades. And we're already seeing some indications that there are solutions uh, uh, coming um, um, uh, down the pike, um, with, including uh, some reports of um, patents already being filed by Huawei and others. So I'm not directly concerned about that. I think, I think the hidden topic here um, that has to be, that has to be uh, understood by more people is that uh, we do have this, this major, um, what, what we might call a proxy war uh, between uh, the United States and Russia in Ukraine over the future of the petrodollar. And if you, if you look at uh, what China is trying to do in terms of advancing uh, not only the digital yuan and, and, and um, um, uh, uh, trying to push uh, the Middle East to accept the uh, um, uh, yuan for oil payments. Um, if we look at the amount of oil that's coming from Russia now to China, one of the reasons why China has been able to hold inflation in check, um, not being paid for in dollars, um, that increasingly uh, the petrodollar is at risk for falling. And that is an existential risk the United States. Um, uh, the dollar, the, the strength of the dollar is based on, on the role of the petrodollar, and above all, right now, the U.S. economy is based on um, the power of the dollar as this supranational currency. Uh, this is what allows the U.S. to engage in uh, unsustainable fiscal and monetary policies. So um, if, you, if you look at all the conversations that are taking place in the world, and just in the past couple of months, um, there's this increasing concern that we may be reaching uh, in the near term uh, a tipping point that would that would greatly um, uh, change everything. Um, and it may be, you know, um, it may be rather naive for us at this point to be talking about 5% growth rates or, or some sort of stable recovery or anything uh, globally in the next few years if we do see um, these types of changes accelerating. I think it'll take more time, but nevertheless, this is this is the real struggle underway. This is what we see, uh, not only with, with China trying to advance in a reasonable way, not as aggressively as Russia, but we saw reports coming out of New Delhi just in the past couple of weeks that Modi has a strategy for moving past the petrodollar. So this is, a, this is growing in momentum. Uh, China is a, an active player in this, um, and this is the real uh, contest that I think will far yeah. outpace any sort of uh, U.S. Uh, policies to try to limit Chinese technical growth. And it is significant in, in that context, I think, that both India and China, India joins China in abstaining on some of the more dramatic and lurid United Nations resolutions. That's right. And, and you know, many people have uh, have remarked on the, the double standard that the U.S. is applying here because uh, India is, in fact, buying more oil at a discounted price uh, and paying for it in, in uh, uh, rupees. Um, uh, from from Russia than than China is, uh, and yet you know uh, uh, supporting uh, all the Russia emphasis. Yes, yeah. in in but, but this is yeah. yeah this is this is a but this is a growing uh, international mm -hmm. movement that that poses again an existential risk for the U.S. economy with profound spillover uh, potential for the rest of the world, uh, and this is a thing that in my analyses and research that I'm most focused on presently. Right, Andrew. Let's boil it down to the $64,000 question. What does this all mean for Hong Kong? Andrew Lang? 
Okay. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, Andrew Lang has uh, has left. Uh, Professor Mahoney, are you still there? I am. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, Would you like uh, me to talk about Hong Kong? Yeah. Yes, please. If you've got time, do you have time for well, for, 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 yeah, for a, for think, a two or three minutes? That, uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that uh, the, the prospects for Hong Kong this year and next are rather bright. I think the general um, 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 position in Beijing is that uh, the political situation in, in Hong Kong has stabilized, that we have a threshold for moving forward at this point. Uh, I'm not sure that everyone in Hong Kong shares that opinion. I'm sure there's still some, some um, uh, hard feelings. But nevertheless, uh, I think uh, Hong Kong should be um, uh, expecting um, some growth. Uh, we're, we're already seeing... Uh, as, as was a headline in South China Morning Post this morning, uh, the return of big spenders that are going to help uh, uh, drive uh, mainland big spenders to Hong Kong that will help stimulate um, uh, local sales. But uh, the key, the key part here, I think, is you know, um, uh, Hong Kong has been disciplined, but now it's time for rewards. And I think the key mechanism for bringing more growth and development to Hong Kong will be greater integration into uh, the GBA, the GBA. Greater Bay Area uh, Project, which uh, I think will still continue to accelerate. It is something that uh, Xi Jinping is personally invested in, given his his family's connection. You know, his father was a key driver of Shenzhen's development. Mm. And I, I believe that you know, the government uh, realizes that in order to uh, prevent uh, future problems in, in Hong Kong, that Hong Kong needs greater economic uh, opportunities and economic integration with the mainland. So I, I anticipate that we'll see uh, very friendly Hong Kong policies, um, if not really maturing at speed this year due to uh, the broader, uh, or the, I should say the more narrow national recovery efforts, um, I anticipate them being a key factor um, uh, next year and beyond. Well, and of course, Hong Kong's been given an important uh, cultural role, hasn't it, as a place of cultural exchange between uh, mainland China and the international community. Uh, that's right. And, and I think, though, you know, one of the things that we haven't yet seen here in in uh, on the mainland is um, we still have um, some you know COVID related control policies as as your as your uh, news segment um, in the middle of this program noted you know mm -hmm. they, they have a, a closed loop system operating now in Beijing we know that we're going to probably have uh, another. Uh, surge uh, in a month or two if if, if our if our uh, trend here follows what we've seen in other countries after uh, after uh, uh, COVID optimization, but the um, but we're still here in in at, say at my university and other universities we still we, we've dropped a lot of controls but we still have some controls in place in other words if you want to get access to my university you have to show uh, an ID and anyone else who wants to come in they have to um, um, uh, sign up and show their passport or their state ID or whatever. So we don't have, and, and, key, and what I'm trying to say here is that universities previously were sort of major areas, at least from my vantage point, uh, for cultural exchange, uh, bringing scholars and students and other people over. Uh, universities were one of the main conduits for us. So these haven't completely normalized yet. There's, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe after the two sessions we'll see a gradual uh, relaxation, but that's not necessarily true. Um, I think that there were other things driving these types of restrictions. You know, we had uh, after um, 
you know, we, we put all these controls in place because of COVID. But before that, we we had almost unrestricted access to university campuses. Um, and this had created some concerns because we, we had all these delivery services and all these other people coming in. And it was raising questions about security and the well-being of students. Um, so, you know, will we see a broad relaxing? Will this have uh, a bigger effect on, on exchange and cultural exchange and, and so forth and so on? Or will this continue to create opportunities for Hong Kong uh, to provide and play that role. Um, I, I, I think um, uh, we'll have to wait and see. In fact, it sounds as though we're going back to the future of <laughs> because it's Hong Kong East meets West, which has got to be, what, a 50, 60 years story. Well, you know, that's, that's, that may be uh, something that, that really helps Hong Kong, right? I mean, uh, it, it certainly helped Hong Kong in the past, and it, it may... Uh, give Hong Kong a competitive advantage uh, vis-a-vis Shenzhen and, and Shanghai and, and, and uh, Beijing. Um, uh, we do know that, that the West and the United States has been targeting Hong Kong uh, increasingly the same way that it targets uh, the mainland. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I do think that at least in the near term it, it will benefit Hong Kong, and, and I'm certainly – um, um, clear on the fact that Beijing um, appreciates the fact that Hong Kong can play this liminal role, right. this betwixt and between role between China and the rest of the world. And Xi Jinping singling out John Lee for at the end of his speech. Yeah, I think this was a positive sign. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that um, I think that uh, the, the leadership uh, has a lot of confidence. The, the, the central leadership has a lot of confidence in, in the Hong Kong leadership now. Um, I think that um, they're they're pleased with the, with the way things have have uh, advanced in Hong Kong after uh, after uh, Lee took power. So um, yeah, I, I see all of this as moving in the right direction. Mm. Uh, just going back to the uh, leadership lineup, if we may, um, because uh, uh, we're expecting that uh, Li Chang will replace uh, Li Keqiang at the end of the week as uh, premier. Um, what, what sort of premiership can we expect? I mean, he's, he's the former Shanghai Party chief, as you mentioned. Uh, he's uh, currently the second ranking member of the Politburo Standing Committee. So um, are, are things likely to be um, much different now going forward? Well, you know, in, in, from the broader perspective, this is the first time we'll see a full slate of uh, top officials who are primarily loyal to Xi uh, and not previous leaders like Li Keqiang was. So I think we might expect uh, greater trust, uh, coordination, and implementation of policymaking uh, at the national level. Um, you know, but I, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that despite uh, their loyalty, these are not uh, yes men. You know, there were some concerns that we might see some some uh, yes men appointed even to the to the standing committee, and that didn't happen. Uh, 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 people like Li Chiang, they're heavy hitters uh, with uh, deep political experience and their own broad constituencies. Uh, they're likely to shake up uh, lagging reform efforts. Um, you know, further, we know that uh, history shows us that the party is bigger than the man, and the nation is bigger than the party. Uh, if the man sufficiently serves the party, then he keeps power. If the party sufficiently serves the nation, then it keeps power. And no one understands this better uh, than Xi Jinping and the, the, the senior leadership. Now, you're right. I think the person to watch is Li Chiang um, um, and the state council that forms around him. Um, uh, we know that he has the complete confidence of Xi Jinping, so I think we can expect less uh, contention between um, uh, uh, the president and the premier. 
that that we've that we've heard at least reported in the press in the past several years. Uh, we can therefore expect less ad hoc small group leadership and a more fully empowered uh, uh, state council. Uh, we've already heard reports that, uh, and, and uh, you know, not to, to verify these, but we've, we've heard them uh, in, in various uh, publications that Li Chang was instrumental in the decision to fast exit uh, China's dynamic uh, COVID zero policies late last year. Uh, outflanking uh, uh, those who advocated a more conservative approach. Now, if this is true, um, uh, and, and given the fact that this appears uh, to uh, have been the right decision, um, it indicates uh, that he's already uh, wielding uh, a considerable amount of power um, and that we can expect a lot more bold decision-making to come. Um, so, yes, I, I think that uh, he's the, he should be the focal point and, um, and that we will see um, some significant changes coming. Okay. All right. Well, thanks very much for speaking to us uh, on the, this morning's programme. Uh, that was Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University in Shanghai. And thank you also to Andrew Leung, a prominent uh, international China specialist, Chairman and CEO of Andrew Leung International Consultants and Investments. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Christine Choi, the Secretary for Education. Congratulations on the 95th anniversary of RTHK and many wishes for its future success. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Okay, and for the last few minutes of this morning's programme, we're turning our attention to our second topic, and that is uh, the fire that broke out uh, last Thursday night at a, a tower block in Chim Sa Choi, a 42-storey uh, block under construction, um, was uh, due to house a, a hotel and also the revamped um, Mariners Club. Uh, a lot of our listeners may remember the old uh, Mariners Club in... Um, there in Chimsacho. We're now uh, to, to, to talk about this and special uh, fire safety considerations in a high-rise city like Hong Kong. We're joined uh, on the line by Edward Chan, who's uh, past chairman of the uh, Hong Kong Institute of Engineers uh, Structural Division. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Thanks very morning. much. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, let me ask you first. Uh, this was a building under construction. Um, obviously, there there's lots of flammable materials around. I, I think there was another fire at the same venue a few months ago. Some bamboo scaffolding caught fire. Are our building sites especially vulnerable to this kind of thing happening? Oh yes, uh, because uh, the site is uh, under construction. And there could be all kinds of um, uh, con construction material which are uh, a bit combustible. And uh, especially like this uh, fire in this uh, building uh, with the uh, fire starting with the scaffolding, bamboo scaffolding, and it goes all the way up. So uh, these are the uh, some of the uh, construction materials that are combustible that could caught fire and could spread. Mm. Um, so it is, a, it is a risk. Uh, and uh, actually, in uh, in our industry in Hong Kong, there are uh, guidelines from the uh, Construction uh, Industry Council and uh, Buildings Department about regarding uh, construction site, site safety. 
So there could there are uh, some guidelines as to uh, what has to be uh, provided in uh, such a building under mm. construction, mm. and uh, um, of course there are uh, uh, all kinds of uh, of uh, 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 seminars and and uh, talks that uh, mm. uh, the contractor has to uh, provide to his uh, his uh, workers yeah. uh, to make sure that it's safe. Mr. Chang, good morning. Um, Morning. In, in terms of a completed building, I think Hong Kong has has a good record and good regulations because we've had to grow used to fighting fires from within the building, which is why we're so uh, strict on having uh, water and uh, different floors and, and, and so on and experience and e- examining regularly that the fire fighting equipment is, is in, up to standard and in place. So... When the building is finished, I think we we feel pretty good about safety in Hong Kong. But this does seem to be a gap here. When it's not finished, um, we may have more to do. Yes, you're correct. Because uh, once the uh, building is uh, finished, or before the building is being occupied, there are, uh, you know, what we call occupancy uh, inspections, especially by the fire department. Uh, from Hong Kong, yes. and it is a very stringent uh, inspection uh, to make sure that all the fire equipments and the fire uh, installations are working uh, before the, uh, you know such a work occupation permit being granted. So for finished building, it's it's, uh, it's under you know very stringent control. But in for construct for building under construction or construction site, um, it's it's not uh, it's not. Uh, uh, usual for the fire department to uh, do any inspections, uh, and and we all can appreciate that because uh, it's under construction and and uh, there could be all uh, the the installation could be uh, temporary or it could be uh, in, in uh, building up in, in stages and, and not performing uh, uh, at that time. So uh, uh, that could yes is is a is a is something that the uh, registered building. Building con- general building contractor has to uh, has to you know be be careful uh, you know with themselves with uh, the work that they are doing and uh, uh, you know a lot more is uh, depending on the uh, performance of the registered building contractor. Right, uh, because I mean, if I were if I was a fireman inspecting a completed building prior to occupation, my thought would be. I'm going to have to go in there with my men and fight a fire if this building um, is subject to a fire. So I'm going to make damn sure that all the equipment is there and it's all working very, very well. But we don't seem right. to have the same mindset uh, during during the construction phase. Uh, yes, that, that's correct. Exactly, exactly what I was going to mention. Because in, during a construction site, uh, you know, you have uh, the fire installation is not uh, completed. Um, uh, you know, for, for a very simple example, there is no, uh, there is no uh, water for fighting a fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the water pump is not installed yet. The pipes are not installed yet. So uh, yes, it is. Uh, it is something that uh, um, we have to rely on the, mm-hmm. the building contractor. Right. Rely on the contractors and uh, and plan ahead. Yes, thank you very much for speaking to us uh, on this morning's programme. I'm sorry, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time now. That was Edward Chan, the uh, past chairman of the Hong Kong Institution of Engineers uh, Structural Division. Stand by for the news summary.